Welcome to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This This is the Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. What's up, Bible geeks, and Merry Christmas, and welcome to the Edge Podcast Season 2 Finale. I'm your host, Scott Logan, and I can't believe that we're already here. We started this journey in the book of James almost six months ago now, and it's time to finally wrap this study up. Season two has been really fun for me, and we'll talk more about that and what direction things are going to take after this a little later in the show. By the way, saw Star Wars last week, and I loved it. I did end up seeing it on opening night, which was cool because there were some opening night perks like free popcorn, some free Star Wars swag, and also a message from the director, Ryan Johnson, with a special look at John Williams. It was a little documentary about the music of Star Wars before the movie even started. And yes, I did go see it with my friends on Saturday, And no, I didn't omit from them the fact that I saw it without them on Thursday. I told them and they graciously laughed it off and then got a little jealous about it. But we had a great night seeing it together on Saturday. I'm actually going to see the movie again with Shannon tomorrow. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys, but I'm really looking forward to seeing where they go from here in episode nine. Until then... I believe we have the Han Solo movie next year, so that'll be fun. If you like Star Wars and you haven't seen this movie yet, I definitely recommend you go see it. It is for sure one of my favorites so far in the entire Skywalker saga, so I highly recommend it. Also, uh, in other news, if you haven't heard yet, and I am a little late with this because last week's show was so pre-recorded that it was before this news came out, but theologian R.C. Sproul just passed away at the age of 78. If you don't know who R.C. Sproul was, Sproul was a co-pastor at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida, and he was an expert in apologetics and philosophy. He was a teacher at Knox Theological Seminary, uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, and if that's not enough, Westminster Theological Seminary. Sproul has written countless books, including some big titles like Chosen by God, The Holiness of God, and Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. I also read a long time ago Uh, in HM Magazine, well, back then it was Heaven's Metal, that R.C. Sproul was also golfing buddies with Alice Cooper, which, to be honest, I would have loved to have been the golf caddy listening to their conversations. Certainly, he's left a great legacy behind him, and he's going to be missed by countless people, but I'm sure if given the chance to come back to Earth right now, Sproul would turn it down in the light of being where he is and with whom. Sproul said this about death probably about six years ago. He said, When we close our eyes in death, we do not cease to be alive. Rather, we experience a continuation of personal consciousness. No person is more conscious, uh, more aware, and more alert than when he passes through the veil from this world into the next. Far from falling asleep, we are awakened to the glory and all of its significance. For the believer, death does not have the last word. Death has surrendered to the conquering power of the one who was resurrected as the firstborn of many brethren. Doesn't that sound exciting? Now, don't get me wrong. That's not calling everyone to jump off a bridge today, but that's definitely 
describes the hope that we have uh, that when our time is done here, we have far better things ahead of us. Gotta feel good for R.C. Sproul right now and what he's experiencing. I'll tell you one experience that I didn't enjoy here on Earth. I went to the doctor this week to have my first checkup in like 24 years. And yes, I can't stand going to the doctor and nothing's ever really ever been wrong, so I just don't go. But this experience taught me something about myself and that is that I am not a fearless person. In most cases, I can handle just about anything, but I've always known that I've had at least a slight aversion to shots. I mean, I really don't like needles, and I know, I mean, who does, right? Who wants metal jabbed into their muscle? But what I didn't realize was just how deep this phobia is. This, and I mean this truthfully, this was humiliating. Because it's been so long, I was due for a tetanus shot this week, and up to that point, my appointment was going splendidly. Everything else showed that I'm in good health and making the right decisions in my journey to keep losing weight, and the doctor said that I really only need to go back for checkups every couple of years or so. Then he recommended that I get the tetanus shot, and under a sense of peer pressure, I said yes. He left, and when his very kind assistant came back to do the shot, I thought, I got this. But guys, something came over me that I've never experienced before. And I can compartmentalize this and say that while half of my brain intellectually knew that it was only a one-inch needle and it would be over quickly and then done for the next 10 years, the other part of my brain, and I mean involuntarily, freaked out. I couldn't do it. I've never in my life experienced that kind of anxiety. I didn't realize my fear was so strong and that deep, but I almost passed out. My mouth went completely dry and I started hyperventilating. My body literally was moving away from the shot every time she got close with it without any way for me to take control of myself and settle down. And I was consumed with this feeling of impending doom. I shut down in a way I didn't know was possible over a one inch needle. After about 25 minutes of this, I finally gave up and went home. I looked up at the nurse and I said, I, I'm sorry, I mean, I don't think I can do this. Could I do it another time? And I think after about 25 minutes of this, she said, that is an option. You don't have to do this if you don't want to right now. And I took it, guys, I wussed out. I literally gave up. And I left that place with some of the most shame and embarrassment I've ever felt. I was humiliated, but yet at the same time, I was finally able to breathe again. And I felt so relieved, like I was just saved from certain death. I can face just about anything and be okay with it. But for some reason, when the alcohol-dipped cotton ball rubs on my arm, something else takes over in me. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's going to be a while before I go back and do that again. Hashtag, I'm a wuss and I'm okay with that. Now, today's study. As for today, we are in James 5. And we're closing up James 5 today. Last week, we talked about 
just one verse with verse 12. And we talked about the need for Christians to put so much importance into backing up the words we say that there isn't even the need to make an oath to someone to convince them that we're telling the truth. Well, this week we're picking things up in verse 13 and finishing the chapter. And what we're going to read today has been interpreted very differently across the church. There are some very different views on this passage, and I'm going to let you know where I stand on it personally and why. There are some movements in the church who view this very differently and do some practices in the church that personally I believe are silly and unnecessary. And that's probably because these practices are born out of reading this scripture as an isolated point and not in the context of the entire book. You must unlearn what you have learned. And that's something, as we've talked about before, that we need to avoid as we approach scripture. We cannot take one verse here and another verse here and then take another verse over here and build a whole theological system out of it. We need to understand context. Guys, context is everything. We need to be willing to invest the time that it takes to be able to understand the book that is God's communication to us, his redeemed children. I've said this so much over the last two seasons of the show, but we cannot go through life building a belief system out of experiences and feelings. How we view God, how we view Satan, uh, how we view the world, and how we view ourselves has to be fully influenced by the entirety of Scripture and the context that it's written in. We can't interpret Scripture based on our feelings and experiences, but what we need to do is interpret our feelings and experiences by what God's Word has to say about them. The problem with not reading this passage in the full context of the scriptures around it is that it's created a belief system for some that quite frankly, and this isn't the easiest thing to say, or maybe even the nicest thing to say, but quite frankly, it's incorrect. People are simply not going deep enough into this and they're reading this wrong. It's become the passage that the Roman Catholic Church uses to support what they call the doctrine or the sacrament of unction. It's a passage that many of today's TV healers and advocates of modern day healing use to promote the idea that we have some sort of guaranteed healing if we pray under the proper circumstances. And if you're not getting healed, then something in you is wrong. It's a passage that's used for putting dabs of oil on sick people's heads when we pray for them. So let's go ahead and read this and then talk about it like we always do. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. 
My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Just reading those verses might bring up some interesting questions. When he talks about suffering in verse 13, what kind of suffering is he referring to? When he talks about sickness in verse 14, what kind of sickness does he have in mind? And what is it that the elders of the church have to offer in their prayers that others don't? Do they have a special access to God? And what is this anointing and why oil? And does this prayer of faith always restore the one who's sick? And what does sin have to do with it? And what kind of healing is he talking about in verse 16? And why does he give an illustration of rain in the middle of the passage about healing? What's the significance? I don't know. Again, the only way to answer those questions is if we back up and view scripture in its entire context. So let's back up and recap what we've learned over the last six months. Previously on the Edge Podcast. James is writing this letter to an assembly of Christian Jews. They're called in verse 1 of chapter 1, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. They are a church, an assembly of Christian Jews who call Jesus Lord. Uh, They've been scattered out of Palestine, out of Jerusalem, by the persecutions found in Acts 7 and in Acts chapter 8 in what's called the dispersion. And here is a group of Jews living in an assembly as Christians somewhere in the Mediterranean area. Now, because they are Jews to start with, and because they are Christians who exalt the name of Christ, they find hostility in that culture, which means that they are in a major situation of stress. These guys are under trials that many of us can't understand. And chapter one opened up telling them that they needed to learn how to be patient in their trials. These guys were under temptations that were severe. They were under persecution. And James is writing to them in the midst of the stress and hostility and persecution and temptations and trials that the world is bringing. And he's doing so to encourage them to stay faithful. Not all of them, though, are actually saved. Some of them need to examine themselves to see if they're even saved at all. That's why James has been giving one test after another so that they can gauge the authenticity of their faith. James tells the ones who are genuinely Christians that they need to remain faithful in a very difficult situation. They're experiencing a lot of trouble. They're being persecuted for what they believe. The pressure is coming at them from both outside of their community and inside. From outside, they're feeling it from a hostile, anti-God world system. And then from the inside, they're dealing with the lust and temptations that are elicited out of them from the things in the world that would attract them. James spent time encouraging them to not become friends with a God-hating world system. While many of the circumstances can be different, the science is the same for us and today's rotten God-hating world system. It's hard, and it's a battleground for daily battle. Through this book, 
James has been calling his readers to endure it all, to endure it, like in chapter one, without wavering, without being unstable, without doubting, to look past the pain and the persecution, to look for the crown of life, as he calls it in chapter one, uh, which is that eternal life that they're being prepared for. He tells them to accept their temptation as a part of what it means to be human and also to use grace to overcome it. He tells them to avoid being angry with the world and to avoid being vengeful and to avoid an unrighteous attitude. He tells them to put away all sin and to live by the word of God obediently no matter how hard it is. Not to be lured into the world to become its friend. As you can see, these guys were in a hostile situation and it was very difficult. Now we're coming back around full circle in chapter five with this theme. A couple weeks ago, we saw James tell them to be patient in their persecution. In verses 7 to 11, he told them to stay faithful even in the persecution they were facing. These guys were in a continual situation of suffering. They were in continual stress that could produce irritability and it could produce weakness. We can relate with that because we know in our own lives that if you're experiencing some sort of onslaught in your life of persecution or trials or whatever difficult things might come along, uh, you might be tempted to just give up or maybe start to develop an attitude that isn't of God. We might start to get angry or vengeful and then start to use our mouths to let loose on people. Through your words or your actions, you might start to retaliate on the world or those who persecute you. If things get bad enough, then you might take the low ground and start sinning yourself. And you really don't need much more evidence of that than just scrolling down on your phone at some of the comments made on social media that are a poor representation of Jesus's work in a heart. They're not representative of Christ at all. And the stuff that these guys were going through was really hard to deal with. This was real deal persecution. Remember in verse 6 of this chapter when James was talking to the evil rich and said, you have condemned, you have murdered. There were some worldly rich people who were literally killing Christians. This was bad for some of James's readers, they were really suffering. Some of them had suffered by death. Some of them were suffering bodily injury with physical wounds resulting from being persecuted physically. Some of them were literally crushed in their mental and emotional spirit. They were devastated, weary, and feeling weak. Defeat had started to set in for many of them. And so we said in verses uh, 7 to 11, be patient, endure your mistreatment, strengthen your hearts. We saw a couple weeks ago that the Greek word means prop up your hearts with determination, persistence, and inner strength to hang on and not complain, but simply just suffer the affliction. That's the word in verse 10. It means to suffer evil treatment, to endure and to hang on. That's the theme of this book. It's an encouragement to people who are under persecution to hold patiently and strongly without complaining, taking their share of suffering and enduring it all for the name of Jesus. So with that overarching theme, that being the background context to what James is about to say in verses 13 to 18, he then says, is anyone among you suffering he should pray. Let us pray, let us pray, everywhere and everywhere. 
shouldn't surprise anybody because their situation is exactly what he's been talking about here. Are you suffering in this? Then pray. These verses 13 to 18 are all about one subject, prayer. Prayer is mentioned in every single verse from verses uh, 13 all the way through 18. If you want to be able to endure, you need to pray because you depend on a divine resource. You need to go to God. And James hasn't really mentioned prayer like this in the epistle yet, but he saves it for the end after everything he's said so far, and prayer is kind of the climax here. The persecuted and troubled and tempted church is going to find at the heart of endurance a strong commitment to prayer. Prayer is like the fuel to endure it. So this whole message today is about prayer. It's about people who are being called to patience and endurance and strengthening of their hearts and suffering without complaining and taking affliction like Job did and enduring it all. To survive, these people are going to have to be people committed to prayer. It's simple. It's direct. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. On the other hand, he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him praise. That's the other side of it. This is a passage about prayer. It's not a passage about healing. It's a passage about prayer. And we're going to see how James kind of covers four different aspects, uh, products that are produced by prayer. In this passage, James points out prayer's relationship to things like comfort, restoration, fellowship, and power, because those are all great things for the afflicted Christian to hold on to. And this really shines on James's heart and sympathy for his readers. There's been a lot of do's and don'ts in this book, but this isn't a book of angry, strong demands. There's tenderness in his writing. He recognizes the hardness of their conflict, and he knows that there's the need for prayer. I've said this on the show before. I'm not, nor will I ever be an expert. I'm learning as I go along, and I will be for the rest of my life. I've not gone to formal seminary, and everything I say on this show is based on all of the research and study that I do from commentators and teachers whom I trust with far better credentials than me. And they don't think I know a buttload of crap about the gospel, but I do. Okay. And most of all, I rely on the Holy Spirit teaching me through all of it and giving me the discernment to study scripture through hermeneutic Bible study. That's my disclaimer. I could always be wrong on this, but I believe that I'm right when I say that this is not a passage about physical healing. I don't believe that this passage has anything to do with physical sickness or disease at all. I believe that this is a passage about healing spiritual weakness, spiritual weariness, spiritual exhaustion, and spiritual depression, which all require spiritual means like prayer. Viewed in the context of the rest of the book, it doesn't make sense that James would spend so much time talking about the spiritually broken and oppressed weary people and then just quickly juke in a section about physical healing in the middle of it and then juke back to the spiritual again. Nothing up to this point would lead you to expect that coming, and the scriptures after it wouldn't either. Quite frankly, a text on physical healing would be out of sync with the context that we've had in this entire epistle. But a section on how to help people who are spiritually weak and broken, now, that makes sense to me. That's why I say context is so important. So, all right. 
I know that was a lot of buildup going into this study, but it's important to understand the full environment of thought here and the backdrop going into these verses because so often it's been misunderstood. Now, with that said, let's dig in. Verse 13 says, if, or I'm sorry, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. That word for suffering is that same word we read a couple weeks ago. It means to suffer evil treatment. Basically, are any of you being abused? Are you being treated wickedly? Any of you in distress? Are any of you feeling defeated? Let him pray. Turn to God for comfort. That's the idea in this passage. Turn to God in all of this. The word here in the Greek means a continual pleading. When life isn't going the way it ought to go and you're weary and you're weak in faith and you've begun to sort of get defeated by life, continually plead to God for comfort. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. And he says, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. It's funny because some theologians speculate that this might uh, even be a little sarcasm from James, considering the context. I mean, we're talking about suffering here. So James is saying, are you suffering in the midst of this war? Then you should pray. Even if you're in good spirits about it, then you should be praying too and thanking God for it. The Greek word for cheerful means to be well in spirit. To put it simply, it means anyone who has a happy attitude. Great, you're on top. Awesome. Praise God in the middle of this storm for that. He's not talking about physical things here. He's talking about your spirit. On the one hand, you have the one suffering in spirit. On the other hand, you have the happy in spirit. On the one hand, you have the broken. On the other hand, you have the rejoicing. One is singing praise. The other is pleading for comfort. He says if you're cheerful and if your inner self is experiencing well-being, then sing about it. And he uses a Greek word, solato. That sounds like something you'd order at an Italian food restaurant. That's where the word psalms comes from. Let him psalm. The idea is that praise and worship is basic to spiritual comfort. The two are closely related. So verse 13 talks about comfort. You're in deep spiritual pain. Your soul is broken. Pray about it. But if your soul is rejoicing, then give praise. That also tells us something too. That tells us that praise is a form of prayer, doesn't it? In verse 14, he says this, Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. So James has now moved on from the one who is suffering to the one who is so burned out that they've lost the ability to endure the suffering. This is the exhausted, weary, depressed, and defeated Christian. There it is, someone out there hit the confusion alarm, and I understand why. But what we have here is another instance where the English translations have sort of failed us. Because you read the word sick, and naturally you would assume that we're talking about a physical ailment. But there are several terms in the New Testament that can refer to sickness or disease. The term here is an important one. It's the Greek word asthenio. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? 
and it might refer to sickness sometimes, and it is sometimes used like that in the New Testament. But all Greek lexicons agree that its primary meaning is to be weak or to be feeble. In fact, in the epistles and the book of Acts, it's used most of the time for that kind of weakness. In Romans 4.19, in Romans 14.1 and 2, in Romans 14.21, it's used of being weak in faith. In 1 Corinthians 8.9 and also in verses 11 and 12 of that same chapter, it's used of spiritual weakness. In Romans 5.6, it's used of spiritual weakness, speaking of the impotence of the unsaved. In 2 Corinthians 11.21, it's used to refer to the weakness of personality. So a better way to translate this might be to say, is any one of you feeling weak? You're in the middle of the battle, and you're fighting for your life, as it is here against the persecutors, and you're losing out. He's saying, I know some of you are suffering, so pray, but if any of you are weak, where you've arrived at the point where you're just simply defeated and you're down on the battlefield, you're weak mentally, you're weak emotionally, you're physically weak, you're spiritually defeated. The persecution, the trials, the temptations, and the battle have gotten to you. They've gotten the best of you. Perhaps you've tried to pray during the process and you've just not been able to draw on the power of God and now you find yourself in the position of being defeated. I'm pretty sure through some circumstance or another, we've all experienced this too. James says to do this. If you're suffering, then pray. But if you're weak and have simply hit rock bottom and you've hit the point where prayer is just a chore and you don't even feel like you can pray effectively, then you need to find someone else who can pray for you. Someone else who can come alongside you and lift you up and pray for you and pray with you. James gives us a pretty good place to start looking for someone too. He says to go to the elders in our church. Those are the people that God has brought into our lives for this purpose. That's the shepherd's job. These are godly people who, according to 1 Timothy and Titus, have the qualifications to be leaders in the church and come alongside the people and lift them up with righteous prayers. He says, go to the spiritually strong, those who are victorious and those who are patiently enduring. Draw on their strength. If you're suffering, pray. But if you've hit rock bottom and you're weak and the power's all gone out of your life and out of your prayers and you're overwhelmed with the persecution and the trials and the struggles of this life, then go to the spiritually strong and let them pray over you. It's really a beautiful ministry that God created in the church out of his compassion for us because he knows that it's not easy. God's not oblivious to the human condition and the struggle to deal with it. He set this up and gave us the calling to lean on one another. I won't go down this rabbit hole yet because I want to stay on point, but I will say that this is the reason why we need to have a local body of believers that we're plugged into. This is why you cannot be separated from the rest of the church and think you're going to survive on your own. So get into a church, guys, that's theologically sound and connected with one another uh, and grow in the Lord and build meaningful relationships where you can be transparent with no walls. 
Anyway, back to the text. James says something that a lot of people have misunderstood and taken way too far in the wrong direction. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him. And here it is, after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, there it is. Every church that I've ever been a part of, no matter how traditional or contemporary, has done this for sick people. Someone is sick with something minor or major, and then everyone gathers around them, and the pastor or elder will dab a bit of oil on their forehead in some sort of ceremonial practice. And I'll be honest with you, ever since I was a kid growing up in the church, I've never understood why we do this because it just didn't make any sense to me. It was weird and it's never synced with everything else in the Christian life that's actually serving as practical purpose. And the reason why it doesn't make sense is because it really doesn't have a biblical basis. What you have are very loving and well-intentioned people doing a practice because they are taking the English translation literally. Thank you, God of grace, for hermeneutic Bible study. The word here for anointing is the Greek word alepho, and it means to rub or oil. The best way to translate this would be rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean dotting his forehead with a little dab of oil. It means rubbing. It's used of an outward rubbing of the body, in this case, with olive oil. And literally the text says, after having oiled him. Oil him? Yes. It does sound like what you think I'm saying. We're actually talking about massage. In people's literal following of the English translation, they've believed that this scripture was encouraging some sort of ceremony, that it somehow must be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. You know, you put a little dab on their head and that's sort of reminiscent of the Holy Spirit. This is actually far more practical. The word alepho means to oil somebody, to massage them. It was used of washing someone. It's used of pouring oil over someone's head or pouring oil over their feet, rubbing them with oil. The word alepho is never, ever used in scripture to speak of a ceremonial anointing. That's a completely different word. That's the word uh, creo. It's a completely different word. But this word, alepho, uh, is the mundane secular usage where you literally oil and massage something. The root of it is lipos, which means grease, to grease them down. It's not a ceremonial word. All uses of the ceremonial anointing use the word creo, which isn't this. Every time you see this word, alepho, it has to do with that applying oil to someone in a massaging, caretaking manner. People did it after a bath. In fact, oil was the base of soap, and it literally could refer to washing someone. It was used with wine, and you might remember in Luke 10, 34, the Good Samaritan put wine and oil on the man. It says, he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. 
The wine was fermented and had alcohol and cleansed the wounds, and then the oil soothed him. It only was good for a topical or external application. Athletes were often rubbed down with oil because of the soreness of their muscles, and often oil was perfumed with a fragrance. It's still used in the Middle East today. So this verse literally meant if you had a believer coming in weak and weary and wounded and defeated, and maybe that person had literally been persecuted by their employer or by someone who hated Christ, and they came in with a wound or soreness, they would literally pour oil on that wound or on those muscles and massage them if need be. If that person had been abused in their employment and made to work long hours, they would come to the trustworthy elders of the church. And those men, in grace and tender love and mercy, would take some oil out and rub the sore muscles of that weary believer who in the service of Christ had borne the brunt of someone's hatred. And besides that, it also had a metaphorical sense. To say to someone that you want to oil them could just as well mean I want to stimulate, encourage, or massage your spirit and warm your heart and provide strength to your weakness. So from a literal viewpoint, you can see a persecuted Christian coming in whose body is broken because he's been attacked literally and physically for the cause of Christ. And you can see a believer coming in who's wounded and broken and crushed in spirit. On the one hand, they might really apply oil. On the other hand, they might just encourage and love and warm and strengthen and stimulate in the metaphorical sense. In fact, according to Luke chapter 7, verse 46, if you went to a home and you were the main guest, the first thing they might do after they cleansed your feet was pour oil on your head just to soothe you from the dirt and the dust and the heat. In that part of the world, the sun could dry you out, and it was a refreshing thing to do that. That's the whole idea here. Oil was applied to external wounds. It's not ceremony. It's just a practical way to comfort and take care of someone who's hurting. What an awesome ministry. James isn't telling us to weirdly dab oil on a head and pray for physical healing. If James was here now, he probably would look at the people doing that and say, uh, what's that supposed to do? This is a ministry of restoration that the wounded, broken, and weary who are out there fighting the battle come to the pastors and those pastors come alongside them and get on their knees and pray with the spiritual strength that they have on behalf of that wounded person. And in compassion, the pastor reaches out to strengthen and bind up the broken heart and even minister to the wounds if there are wounds to heal. That's the ministry of love. That's the ministry of care. Mark 6, 13 says the apostles went around rubbing oil on people. They understood that. They ministered physical comfort. And it says they do it in the name of the Lord. And that is another beautiful concept to not look over because... That just means that they are doing what Christ would do. That action is consistent with what Jesus would do, his actions, if you come to him as a broken, weary person. Jesus longs to take care of you and mend your broken heart. Now, we still have some ground to cover, so let's move on. Verse 15 says, The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. Once again, our translations say sick, but now this is actually even a different Greek word than the last one. 
This is the word kamnata, and it literally means weary. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews where our translations do render it as weary. This is saying the prayer offered in faith by those godly men will restore the one who is weary and has lost heart. When it says the Lord will restore, it literally means that the Lord will rebuild. That's the word ejero, which means to awaken or to excite. What a cool thought. The weary has lost their excitement. They've lost the enthusiasm to live the Christian life, but the Lord will restore and excite and awaken them. He says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In the case that your weariness and your spiritual defeat is a result of sin, in that environment of crying out to God and confessing your need, he'll forgive you. You'll experience that forgiveness. If sin has been the contributor to the weakness and weariness, this act of coming to the pastors to confess that weakness, that defeat, that need for strength, will cause prayers of confession to rise up and the sin will be forgiven. And in that light, James then makes an important point about staying in fellowship with the church. I made this point kind of earlier, but I didn't want a rabbit trail at the time. But now's the time to bring this up because James does. James gives some encouragement to the congregation, you could say. In the light of what he just said, if you're weak, get alongside someone spiritually strong and let them pray for you. And if your heart is sincere, and you're there because you want God to reach out and restore you, then he'll do that. So if the prayers of a righteous man can assist that weakness in your life, he says next, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Basically, don't wait until you hit rock bottom. Maintain relationships with other godly believers uh, where you're always praying for one another. Stay in constant fellowship and with mutual honesty, confess your sins to one another. It, it doesn't mean that you have to pour out every bit of dirty laundry in your life, but it means don't hide your evil. Sin wants you to be alone. Sin wants to isolate you. Sin wants you to be the leaf that detaches from the tree so that you can lay on the ground with no nutrients and eventually wither and crumble. Sin doesn't want anybody to know. Little Debbie snack cakes, no one has to know. And as long as your condition is private and secret, you can nurse it and nurture it and feed it. And God wants it open and out and exposed among people who love you. The point here is don't let yourself go down to the point of spiritual weakness being driven by your sin because you never dealt with it and you never dealt with it because it was allowed to keep you alone. Don't let that happen. He says the urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Prayer is powerful. That's why you go to the elders. That's why you share your struggle with another brother or sister, because a righteous person praying for you has power. In the Greek, this uses a word from which we get our word energy. The energetic, empowered prayer of a righteous man who has no sin dealings in his life is going to have a tremendous impact. And to drive this point home, James makes an illustration. 
He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. What James is illustrating is that Elijah was a man with like passions. In other words, he was just like we are. He was a man. He was just human. He had a nature like ours. He suffered like we suffered. You can go back and read 1 Kings 17.11 and find out he was hungry. You can read 1 Kings 19.3 and read that he was afraid. I wonder if he would be afraid of tetanus shots. You can read 1 Kings 19.4 and you can find out that he was tired from battle. He was just a man, a regular dude. But the thing is, he prayed earnestly, it says. James says he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. He was just a guy like us. He was a righteous man. His prayers were so powerful, it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed again. The sky poured rain and the earth produced fruit. James is saying, take Elijah, who was a man just like we are. Uh, He had his strong points and weak points. And he said, look at him. He prayed and look what God did. God literally controlled the rain in response to his prayer. Now, this illustration would, again, be kind of weird and misplaced if this was actually a passage to do with physical healing. Kind of like if you were to ask me for an apple and I replied, I like escalators. But when you consider the context of everything, this is a beautiful illustration when you consider that James was writing to and talking in context to people who were spiritually dry and thirsty, people who were spiritually dried up and parched, James wanted to illustrate how God sends down refreshing rain on dry, parched land because what he's been talking about here is the weary, weak, and exhausted, parched soul of the Christian soldier who needs a spiritual outpouring of the blessing of God raining down. And here's something that we can take away from this. James was talking to the persecuted Christian Jews and speaking words that were culturally and circumstantially relevant. But today, we also know what it's like to go through very defeating times in our lives where we are spiritually thirsty. And it's an awesome promise to know that just as God sent the rain in response to the prayers of a powerful, righteous man then, he will also respond to the powerful, righteous prayers of us today and rain his blessing down on a spiritually dry and weary and broken and struggling believer who needs so desperately a refreshing touch from God. Okay, we're here at the end. And now looking at the last two verses of the book where James really summarizes what the intention of this whole epistle has been. His entire letter is intended to convert the sinner from the error of their ways to save their soul from death and to cover their sin in forgiveness. And its emphasis is primarily directed at a person who is within the assembly of the church, who outwardly names the name of Christ as a savior, but inwardly is lost. They have an outward form of godliness, but no real reality of it or power. The epistle was written to confront the congregation of professing Christians and challenge them to examine their profession of Christ to see if it's a real faith or just a dead faith producing nothing. James wants to be sure that no one is deceived about their salvation here. 
And in these last two verses, James isn't talking to the unsaved. He's calling the real Christians to reach out to the unsaved. This is a call to the real believers to do evangelism in the church as well as restore those who have fallen. He says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. James knew that there were and would be people who struggled to stay strong in the faith. In these circumstances that we've studied, you had on one hand the prosperity that the world could offer if you would just allow yourself to adopt the secular world system. And then on the other hand, you had persecution if you chose to stand for godly principles. So certainly there was a recipe here for people to backslide. And James's heart is reaching out to those people. And he's encouraging the church to stand alongside of itself and hold each other up and push each other towards the cross. I could go on, but really this is a self-explanatory, simple and practical statement to end the epistle. James shows us his heart towards the sinner and struggling Christian. That was what moved him to write this letter in the first place. And in that sense, he was just like his big brother Jesus after all. And that, my friends, completes our study in the book of James. Don't go away. We have a few minutes of season two left to go. Where truth and entertainment are BFFs. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Hi, I'm Todd Nettleton, and this is the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. In places of oppression, churches can exist for years before being attacked. But when it comes, it's usually sudden, swift, and violent. Pastor Mashar had pastored a church in Pakistan since 2012. During his faithful tenure, many former Muslims accepted Christ, and some experienced healing from illnesses. Rather than rejoicing, neighbors and opponents of the church sent death threats to Pastor Mashar, his wife, and other church members. Due to increased pressure, he was recently forced out of the neighborhood, relocating to a safer area. Pray those who now oppose the church may remember God's healing work among them and invite Jesus Christ into their hearts. I will not let my brothers and sisters suffer in silence, nor will I let them suffer alone. To join me in prayer for persecuted Christians, go to vomradio.net. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan is a proud partner of JesusFreakHideout.com. JesusFreakHideout.com is one of the world's largest Christian music online resources. Featuring music news, videos, album release dates, album reviews, artist interviews, devotionals, and a lot more. The goal is simple, to bring the latest and greatest in Christian music to the internet masses and beyond. For more information, visit www.jesusfreakhideout.com. You're listening to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This is The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Welcome back, Bible geeks. I want to emphasize one more time how much doing this show has meant to me over the last year and a half. It's pushed me to look deeper in the scripture, which has pushed me to look deeper into myself and examine myself and my own motives and weaknesses. I hope that it's done the same for you. 
There are some of you who are wondering when the next season of the Edge Podcast begins and which book we're going to study next and which special guests will be on the show. Honestly, I don't have an official launch date for Season 3 yet, but I will tell you that Season 3 will kick off sometime in the late spring. Now, I know that's a much longer break than we have between Seasons 1 and 2, but I've actually got a very busy chapter of life coming up where I'm going to need the time. Some of you out there know me just as a podcaster, and some of you know me as a podcaster and a YouTuber. But you may not know that those things only started for me within the last couple of years. For the longest time, I've actually been a self-employed Christian recording artist and songwriter. And through some prayer and much thought, I've come to the conclusion that it's time to take a break from everything else and go back and pick up where I left off and move forward on some unfinished business left behind. Uh, unfinished business that has just been sitting on the shelf ever since my daughter was born two and a half years ago. Starting in January, all of my career focus is going to be just on my music and getting back out there amongst my supporters who uh, have supported me over the years while I sing and entertain and spread the gospel through music and build Christians up with the art form that I love the most. I'm writing for a new album, and then I'll be on the road to raise the money needed to record that next album. Now, that said, I love the Edge Podcast, and I love you guys, and I will be back with the Edge Podcast in about five months. And we'll have a new book to study each week with new guests, hopefully more than just one guest next season. We only had one this year. But we'll be back with new jokes, new sound bites, and more nerdy news, and new ways to geek out on the Bible. In the meantime, if you haven't heard all of the previous episodes of the show, go back to the episode list on the website and check them out. You can go there by going to theedgepodcast.com. When you're there, don't forget to check out all of my social media links at the top right corner of the homepage. You can follow me on Twitter at edgepodcast1. Also, I would love your support if you would check out the merchandise for sale on the site. I've got some cool shirts and stuff, so go check that out. Guys, that's it. That's going to do it for Season 2 of the Edge Podcast. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm Scott Logan saying, have a very Merry Christmas. And when you go out there and live awesome lives for Christ this week, don't forget, live on the edge. You've been listening to The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Visit the website www.theedgepodcast.com for a complete list of episodes, blogs, merchandise, and more. And above all else, live on the edge.